the 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct series, the genre-defining police procedural novels which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with the novel Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series and today's podcast looks at book number 15. It's 1962 and it's time to find out what goes on during the empty hours. To review the book, I am joined, as usual, by my known associates, Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And don't forget that the podcast can easily be found by searching for Hark 87 Podcast on all the things, all the social media, all the internets, all those bits. So there's no excuse for you to not rate this, review the episodes, share it, let everyone know. Let's build a community. Oh, why not? Let's do that. So, hello, everyone. That's the scripted bit out of the way for this week, this week, this month, this went, podcast. Went quite well, that. It was all right, wasn't it? First try. Is it, is it true, though, that it's the only podcast in the world? There's no other podcast dedicated to no. this specific series. I'm sure there are others that touch upon it, but... Uh, Not many that I've I might start one, a book ahead. Oh, no. <laughs> Ooh. I might go backwards. <laughs> well, I would like to think that I've... I've slash we've built listener loyalty and that they would oh, well. they wouldn't take to your breakaway <laughs> podcast. Maybe. That would that was, no there's very few podcasts about or with Ed McBain at all. If you mm. you know, because most of these things are totally indexed and catalogued now. Mm. And yeah, it's just seemed very strange to me. But that's by the by. We're oh, doing it. So I at least there's this. We are. Right. The Empty Hours is the book we're looking at. It's Well, its copyright registration was in April of 1962. And unlike all of the books so far, this is actually a collection of three short stories, three novellas. I don't know quite at what point a novel is a novella. and I think it's just a a vague definition of small book, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Something you could imagine being published as a slender volume on its own, I think we can call a novella. Yeah, or something that could fit into those... um, sort of dense magazines mm. as well. Because actually, most of the McBain's, up to this point, are fairly slim volumes anyway. Absolutely, They're only yeah. about 180 pages. But there's three stories in this, and we will have a look at those. But let us, as we have approached a new year, approached and entered a new year in 1962, mm-hmm. let's have a look what was going on around Ooh. sort of April 1962. Now, I will ask you, gentlemen, to see if you can guess what... One of the hits in the UK music scene was the number one. Was it uh, The Shadows? With Wonderful World, whatever it's wonderful called. Wonderful Land? Wonderful Land. It is, though. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I accidentally gave that away by unconsciously singing it while we while we were preparing for this stuff. So we've all been singing it. And then I commented saying that was probably number one, Matt. <laughs> yeah. So I gave that one away. Mm. But I I do love the music scene at this time. It's, oh, yeah. it's very interesting how it's all changing. In the UK, we've got Wonderful Land by The Shadows of Number One. Great, mm. great mm. instrumental hit. Mm. Not as hard and hitting as Apache, but... Oh, no. You know, not, it's not their best, but it's still a really nice... They, they can't be that raunchy all the time, I mean... No. The sheer power flying out of Jet Harris. Absolutely. But also, at number 10, is one of my absolute, genuine favourite songs of all time by Bernie Cribbins, (sighs) who does have links to the Carry On film. Sorry, Mm. everyone. Fixing a hole? No, he didn't do Fixing a Hole. What's it called? 
Bernie Cribbins covering fixing a horse. No, but you, 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 you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, in the ground, sort of being, sort of right. digging a hole. Holding the ground. Holding the ground. I, 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 I knew it was called something like that. Yeah. I've heard it for many years. I absolutely love the song Hole in the Ground by Bernie Cribbins. It's a good one. I sure know it. Do it's I? just this amazing sort of two minute slice of comedy pop about basically murdering some official who's come to tell him that this, this workman that he's dug a hole in the wrong place and it's the wrong shape and it's, you know, all this stuff. It's, it's just it's striking back against the man. Mm. All with Bernie Cribbins' lovely voice. Yeah, very, very much along similar lines as uh, Right Said Fred, isn't it? It's, uh, it is, but it's more of a stab at authority rather yeah, than it's, just the it's, it's a, a bit edgier, definitely. It's, it's a good one. But also at number 11 is a police-related TV theme from 1962 in the UK, anyway. Z Cars? It's the theme from Z Cars, oh, yeah. which fans of Everton Football Club know very well because it's their sort of... Well, I don't know, it's more or less their official anthem, really, isn't it? It is, yeah, and Watford. So Z Cars started in 1962, which might not be a name that anyone outside of the UK really knows, but it was quite a big deal in the oh. UK. It was gritty, it was set in the north, it was a bit more down-to-earth than the sort of hero cop stuff that had been around oh. and the detective stuff. So that was quite a, a, a big hit in the UK. So that, that came out in 1962, and, and it was in the charts anyway. The music in uh, America, well, Elvis is still in the top of the oh. charts. Anyone ever heard of Elvis's song Good Luck Charm? Nah. No. <laughs> silence speaks volumes. Echoing silence. Yeah. Number one was a thing called Johnny Angel by Shelley Fabaris. Fabars? Fabars. Fabars. <laughs> I can't, I don't know what it's said. Shelley. Don't, don't know that one. No. But it looks like there's quite a few dance craze ones still knocking about Tremendous. the charts at this point. Still Chubby Checker, is he still about? Yeah, Chubby Checker's number three. And he's doing, but his song's called Slow Twisting. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got really tired of all that fast <laughs> twisting. Just, don't stop twisting. Just if you feel the need to rest, don't stop. Just, just ease slow off a little bit. down. That's the thing. But he was also, yeah, there's a song called Mashed Potato Time. Nice. By someone called Dee Dee Sharp. It's, it, that's a winner, actually. Mm. I, I think I've heard that. I, I mean, I'm good. assuming that's about a dance craze and not just about mashed potatoes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and I think shortly afterwards there was someone who did a, 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 a another dance craze called Gravy, which was about wanting gravy on your mashed potatoes. It's It's... I, well, I hope somewhere that that genre continued and all yeah. the food stuffs were Absolutely. taken care the, of. Various other condiments that you want to put on there and... Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Slice of roast beef. <laughs> With your mash. Yeah. Sorry, I'm this already got very silly. But that's you know, that's the wonderful thing about music is it's yes. sort of important and not important at the same time. Yeah, it's the spirit of sixty two I think, so uh... Yeah, very much so. Film wise, the big film of nineteen sixty two was Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, gosh. A film I've still never seen all the way through. Oh, it's great. It's a film I've seen like half hour segments of on many a bank holiday. Oh, it's great. While my dad snores through like the other six hours of it or how long it is. What do you like? Taken Akabus. I don't know. I don't know. It's great in its scope and uh, lots of deserts and mirages. It looks tremendous, and that that, um, the, the scores. Yeah. Quite epic and sweeping as well, isn't it? As yeah, lots of dramatic fitting. moments. Yeah. yeah. Lots of uh, charging across deserts on horseback. 
lots of uh, Turks looking confused. <laughs> Always a sign of a good movie. And then lots of British backstabbing and... Confusion and colonialism. Yeah, yeah. lots of... Uh, yeah. Plenty of that, yeah. yeah. So other films that were uh, sort of around at the time were The Music Man, which is a, a great musical film. Yeah. To Kill a Mockingbird, that was obviously Ooh. quite well known. And Gregory Peckery. Gregory yeah. Peckery. Uh, Gregory Peck was nominated as Best Actor um, in the Oscars. Tremendous. In the UK, well, you know I like getting to my UK Ca- film. Carry on. Carry on. Carry on. Which carry on film? Carry on. Oh, I don't even Candelabra. Know. I don't <laughs> know. Carry on. <laughs> uh, carry on. What might it be? Carry on Constable, maybe? No. Carry on. Uh, well, it was... In Up fact, the shopping centre. Carry don't on. Know. <laughs> don't know. They've all got stupid names, haven't they? Carry on cruising. Yeah, there cruising. we go. Be able to see. I don't yeah. think I've seen that. It's all right. Carry on cruising. Hmm. I seem to recall. It's not too bad as far as carry on films go. It's okay. <laughs> that was actually released on the day that the copyright was registered for this book. Some other go. things that. Well, there was a film called It's Trad Dad, which nice. I would love to see. That's so about real ale. <laughs> no, yeah. <laughs> About the, the, the dangerous terms. sounds of the Trad Jazz revival. Well, it stars Helen Shapiro. Oh, wow. Not Trad Jazz at all. Well, no, but she, it, she was a, a bit of a youth figure, I suppose, at the but time. But it does have a few. Um, as Jessica Trad. <laughs> Jessica Trad. Making her way. You can't go out there and play clarinet. That was the sort of thing that her father well, would say, you see. Drink this. <laughs> drink this flat brown drink. You stay away from that Kenny Ball. I believe Kenny Ball and his Jasmine are in this film, as is the swearing Ackerbill. Yeah, Farmwell Ackerbill. Two podcasts in a row for him. <laughs> it's glorious. Uh... But also, uh, Chubby Checker's in it, Del Shannon, uh, Gary US Bonds, wow. Gene Vincent, to Gene name... Vincent? Yeah. Ah. So I'd love to see it's Trad Dad, so yeah, it sounds that. very interesting. There's so many names in it, and it must only have a short running time. It's probably wall to wall, so it's... Uh, yeah, the, the, the flimsiest of plots. Indeed. Yeah. Mm. Do you want to do a, a guess at which Hammer Horror films came out? You've got three you could possibly choose in 1962. 62? right. And yeah. I bet you wouldn't get any of these. So the rest of the podcast may just be me making Steve-O guess films Ooh, in so, I so they're not of the main franchises. No, right, OK. We're not on Plague of the Zombies yet either. No, no, too um, early for that. Yeah, uh, I'm not great at the really early 60s ones. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of... Give us a word seen. in one of them. Blood. <laughs> Blood from Nunnery's Tomb. No, it's not a first word, I'm afraid. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Well, have you seen Pirates of Blood River? No. Have you seen Phantom of the Opera, the Hammer Horror version? No. Oh, no. Have you seen Captain Clegg? No. Well, those are the three. All oh, right. <laughs> we would have been here forever. <laughs> For, yeah. Yes. Until we just came across the sort of combination of words that... You mm. see, they didn't... Uh, they had the early really successful franchises, but they didn't start churning out all the ones mm. you've seen time and time again until, like, the mid-60s, really. That's true. Yeah, when it really hits proper... The late 60s, horror. when you get the... the the, the golden era, I would Absolutely. say. Absolutely. Oh, so, you know Castle, all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Michael Ripper. The also, Michael yeah. Ripper era. Anyway, Zed Cars, I've already mentioned. The Saint starts on TV oh, as well. Oh, oh. Leslie Charteris is the Saint, as portrayed by Roger Moore. Events-wise, oh, Steve-O, the first 26 miles of the M5 motorway open. Bloody hell. And would you, uh, either of you, like to guess at 
the scoreline for Tottenham Hotspur versus Burnley in the FA Cup? What final? Yeah. Three uh, one. Three one to Tottenham Hotspur. <laughs> well done. I assume you actually knew that. Of course, yes. <laughs> oh, this is a good one. I'll, uh, I think this is very important. I mean, it, this would mean a lot to any child who's grown up since this point, in the UK at least. Golden Wonder introduced flavoured crisps for the first wow. time. Wow. And so, I don't want to make this into a quiz, but what was the first flavour of crisps outside of, you know, salted? It seems a bit of a boring guess, but I would say salt and vinegar. Cheese and onion? It's cheese and onion. Is it? Oh. The, the worst of all things. You nah, salt and vinegar's worse. Salt and vinegar's lovely, cheese and onion's lovely. Put them both in a big bag, shake them up. Have a variety then, 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 then throw them in the bin. No. All right, Never speak onion. of them again. Heathens. <laughs> Yeah, no, I just thought salt and vinegar. We've got some salted crisps. All you have to do is lash some Yeah, vinegar, and salt and vinegar is obviously very common in you know fish and chips and stuff like that. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it made sense. I bet it was number three. But, uh, yeah, so what was the fourth flavour? Prawn cocktail. I don't right? have that information. The I'm fourth so flavour of crisp introduced in the United That revolting pickled was, onion uh, thing. Prawn cocktail. I bet you it was prawn cocktail. It probably was, wasn't it? Well, we'll the just... fifth. What was the fifth? <laughs> Um, the fifth Worcester sauce yeah what was the sixth (laughs) the sixth the sixth flavour of crisp was beef beef or beefy yeah Yeah. the seventh oh bloody hell sorry thank you (laughs) so that was the important news coming out of the UK in 1962 while in America a similar sort of thing was that um, John Glenn was the first American to uh, orbit the Earth. Very similar. We had crisps, they put a man in space. Yeah, you know. The story of which was told, well, not that specifically, but the story was around that was told in the film Hidden Figures, oh. which, if you've not seen, is a very, very it's good film. terrific. Also, Gary Powers, who was shot down in the spy plane, mm-hmm. was uh, exchanged for the German spy, the Russian spy, oh, yeah, which yeah. was told in the film Bridge of Spies, which is also quite good. Mm-hmm. So that's put that all aside. Now we've dealt with the early part of 1962. When we do the next Phew. book, we'll deal with the, the back end of 1962. Marvellous. You know, Christmas number ones. And well, there's quite, quite a lot going on that, was, that yeah. period of... His, but his, 1962 is a year where Evan Hunter only releases two books, and they're both 87 precinct books, of which this is obviously the first... The reason, I think, for that is because it is the period when he was actually working with Hitchcock, writing The Birds, so he was away from home, he had a very specific job to do, and it was very intense. Mm -hmm. So I think that may be the reason that The Empty Hours comes out and is made up of pre-existing stories. Have they already been published, then? They have already been published. I'll give you the the overview of where they were published first. So The Empty Hours was published in 1960 in Ed McBain's Mystery Book Number 1. So that was the big selling point for the, for the first edition of Ed McBain's Mystery Book magazine. It was a brand new 87th Precinct story. And it was later published in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine in uh, 1967. But that was its first showing. So the first story in the book is The Empty Hours, published in 1960. The second story in the book is called J, just the letter J, not the bird. That was published in 1961 in a magazine called Argosy. Not the Argos catalogue, it was published in that. Every but, page was laminated. Yeah, yeah. You couldn't read it, you'd have to go and ask for someone to tell you it over a counter. Argos is a catalogue shop for people who are 
annoying. Yeah, isn't that giant laminated book? <laughs> the yeah, so Argosy, which had been a, ma- a very long-running magazine, and it was a uh, volume three hundred and fifty-two, issue number five, May nineteen sixty-one. Right, breaking. We're churning for. Yeah, there's lots of that. And the third story in the book, which is called Storm, that was first called Murder on Ice. Mm. And that was also published in Argosy in uh, November 1961, volume 353, number five. So you guys can have a look at the, look at the pictures. Yeah, you see, I tried to find that. I'm, I'm hopeless on researching, because I tried to find that. and hmm. I, couldn't, well, I couldn't. De Gaulle's. <laughs> always found the uh, political intrigue. War bit. book bonus De Gaulle. Mystery book bonus, bloody hell, humour book bonus, James Thurber, Ring Lardner. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, you can study that at your leisure, Steve. John MacDonald, I wonder if that's... uh... I imagine that is John D. MacDonald. Yeah, it looks like a a fine publication. Cool. Tremendous. But yeah, they're all magazine publications, these stories, in in one form or another. And what I can't find out is how much they may have changed between between then and the actual publication version. Because this is one of the books, I think it's probably the only book that knackers up. Uh, it ruins the, mm. the timeline yes. of the things. Because the things that occur in these stories, in this book, don't tally with what's occurred in the, the two books previous or the book to come. In mm. terms of character relationships and then what they seem to be doing and where they are. Yeah. And if you're a massive nerd like me and you've actually found out the date of Passover in 1961, which <laughs> definitively dates one of these, so you have to sort of place these back. These are sort of slotted within mm. other adventures. And you do have to retcon them a little bit if you want to do that as well. But, you know, that's fandom for you. Absolutely. We're almost there. We'll actually get on the story soon. <laughs> Maybe. I thought. And this is very important to me now, so I've got to announce this. I've been looking desperately for a link between Ed McBain and Doctor Who. <laughs> Another one of my big obsessions, I've mentioned the Transformers, I've mentioned a bit, you know, the Beatles and things like this in our history club sections, but I've not been able to find a definitive Doctor Who link. But, um, until... Oh, oh I'm not allowed to do that. <laughs> yeah, stop playing the snare. Drum, drum roll. That was a, yeah, that was a table snare, snare roll. In 1999, uh, an audio book of this came out on six cassettes. Cassettes in 1999. Amazing. And it was read by an actor called Garrick Hagen. Have you heard of him? I have not. Did he play a Cyberman in... uh... Well, (laughs) the thing is, I can say for definite that you have seen him in stuff. Probably Mm. quite a few things. What's his name again? Garrick Hagen, H-A-G-O-N. You will have seen him in the original Star Wars, the first one, episode uh-huh. four or whatever it is, as Biggs, one of the uh, fighters in the... Oh, right, yeah. Okay. So he's quite popular with fans. He's one of those names that sort of... I think he's I done see. some of the games and things like that. Yeah. And he's been in The Spy Who Loved Me as one of the crew members of the USS Wayne. So you'll have seen him lots, he's done lots yeah. of stuff. But I was very pleased to find he was in six episodes of a John Pertwee Doctor Who in 1972 called The Mutants. <laughs> and he was also in an episode of Doctor Who from 2012, one of the new iterations of Doctor Amazing. Who called A Town Called Mercy. So not only have I found an Ed McBain connection, <laughs> albeit super tenuous, yeah. I've also found one of the few people who's been in old Doctor Who and new Doctor Who Brilliant. as well. Because I am a nerd. So there you go. I must say there is also an audio book that was narrated by Dick Hill who has done 
thousands of audio books. Should that be the sort of thing you listen to? If you have listened to the audio book, let us know which version it was and what you thought of it. Because none of us, I think, listen to audio books in this way. I I just do a lot of radio and podcasts and stuff. But I'm very interested to know whether the voices are suitable. Yeah, absolutely. That would be fascinating to get that insight. Yes. Feedback, please. So let's try and get into it. I do have a review from Criminals at Large, Anthony Boucher's column. It does say, A book in which the precinct is working on several cases at once seems to bring out the quality of this series better than these distinctly separated episodes. Wow. But nevertheless, uh, two of the three... I'm sure I've just read Nevertheless twice. No, I haven't. That's just my, <laughs> that's just my bad eyesight. But two of the three are nevertheless more than satisfactory, especially Maya's case, Jay, which is the second of the stories. Mm. But he seems quite happy about it anyway. Oh, is that the guy who always loves them all? Yeah, he, yeah. yeah. He does. The Empty Hours, then. Uh, we've had a question from a listener, Lorraine, who is a listener and person in this house. And one thing she does ask is, is there a theme between these three stories? Before we get stuck into the individual ones, is there a theme? I've been pondering no, this. No, I don't know. I'm, without giving it much thought. I don't... I, I can't see that there is. No. I don't think there is particular... Nothing specific. No. I mean, he's chosen the name The Empty Hours to be the title for the no. entire volume. But that doesn't but really have anything... But it's also the title of one book. But that doesn't really have anything to do with... Jay and Storm, I, I, I didn't Well, think. the only thing I think is that the Empty Hours is called so because of one line in it, which it says, and in the Empty Hours she sleeps, it's talking about the city, uh-huh. as a woman, as the city is in these books, and she does not seem to be herself, and he's talking about the early hours uh-huh. of the morning, because it's set on the night shift, which yeah. begins at uh, six in the evening and ends at eight in the morning, so that all happens in the Empty Hours, and I think Jay is also set in the night shift. Mm. And that's the only link there. Yeah. And the last one is set not at out, the precinct out, at yeah, all. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So not ramp. I don't it's think so. Very tenuously if at all. I think it's just a nice enigmatic title yeah. that suggests that it's about it's about the less busy and obvious spaces that the stories take place that, in. That's that's conceptual think, rather than actual. I think the true truth of the matter is just bunged all three short stories he's had available together. To make sure there's a book out while he's off in California writing the It has the feel of a stopgap, like enjoyable though it is, but uh, you know. Yeah, that's that's one thing I will say. Yeah, if we accept the reality that it is, oh, what what can we publish? Well, I've got this, this, and this Mm. I've done for other stuff. Yeah. It is still a very nice collection of of stories, and they really rattle through for, for the size of them. You can, they're about, I think, between about 12 and 16 chapters each, Mm. and they just. Go through really direct yeah. line, no, no massive red herring plots. No, mm. I mean there is a bit of a relationship stuff in in this, but not too much of it. It's, it's very very compact. Yeah. It does show that how good a writer he is, is it, in that compact format. Very good at taking the familiar elements of, of those novels and just compressing them down into these these little kind of nuggets of storytelling. Yeah, great. Cool. It opens with the empty hours itself. The Titular story. That is the one that I looked at in close detail. And the, the main thing to say about that really is that it's, I would call it one of his paper chase stories, which is a feature that crops up in some of the books because ostensibly what happens is they're trying to solve a mysterious death, they've discovered a body, and the main evidence they have to go on, other than some witness testimony here, there, and everywhere, is a bundle of cancelled checks. 
i.e. cheques that have been cashed and spent. And then it is a, mainly a case of them going around from location to location asking, do you remember who cashed this cheque? What was it for? Why was this? And so there's loads of reproductions of cheques throughout the story. And you sort of have to try and keep your mind on how much money's been spent because the cops are having to do that as well. Try to find out where the unaccounted money comes from and why this, this young girl's got all this money. So it's like one of the main features you get in some of the other books, mm. just to itself. And that really is the main thing of it. Mm. And I like that because that is the procedural stuff. Absolutely, yeah. One good bit of it, though, is that the event that is being investigated takes place in a place called Triangle Lake, which I thought, well, is he, has he chosen a real place in the real world? There is two Triangle Lakes, sorry, three Triangle Lakes, two in the US, one in Canada, but they're both nowhere near New oh, yeah. York. I was trying to think, well, where has he chosen that's a real place? I found a round lake, a lake that's just called Round Lake. <laughs> Can you guess why? Evidently not. It's just a round lake. Oh. I, I thought there was going to be something really clever, but no, no. not at all. It's just a round <laughs> lake. You can see it on a map. That was the only lake I could find with the name of a shape attached to so, it. So he's maybe just seen that and thought, yeah, we'll have that. Rhombus Lake? No, no. no. <laughs> Parallelogram? No. Nonagon Lake. <laughs> but actually, I did find that there is a place called Triangle and that has a forest nearby with a lake in it as well so maybe actually he's picked that out I couldn't find the name Triangle Lake in relation to New York but there is a town called Triangle which appears to have about three houses in it and when I looked at it on Google Maps what was great was as the Google car has gone past it's gone past at Halloween so on the corner of one of these houses there's a huge plot which has got loads of Halloween things including a ten foot tall figure of death that this Google car has captured as it's driven past. That's so great. <laughs> All these hellhounds and, and massive pumpkins. Isn't it just what it looks like? No, yeah, well, I assume it's Halloween. <laughs> Maybe that's just what it's like. It does look like somewhere you might go and get murdered. Just just death happens to live at Triangle. Death lives at Triangle. Well, it the sounds like a, a title. Well, it sounds like a corrupted Poirot title. <laughs> there is a thing called Triangle at Rose. So, yeah, so that's my... Obviously, New York's got loads of lakes up there. You couldn't possibly research all of them to try and no, find the most likely candidate for things that he's probably just picked out of his head. Yeah. There is one called Lake Desolation, which sounds Oof. quite good. And, of course, the Finger Lakes, <laughs> which, for fans of Saturday Night Live, will know that it's the sketches that involve the phrase, the Finger Lakes, is <laughs> one of the best things in the world. So this is the Empty Hours, then. It's, it's a Corella and... Cotton Hawes investigation. They're the main two in it. Although it's got a few kooky characters. Sure has. Some of which were portrayed on screen in the TV adaptation mm-hmm. of this. Shall we mention that? Oh, I suppose we we'll have, have just to. watched it. It must have been probably the last one that was delivered for the TV script. So, even yeah. though it was shown quite early because they would have run out of stories by this point. Yeah. Um, the Empty Hours as a story in the book is great. It's, it's compact. It's, it's good. It's a good one. Well, somebody else told about the TV episode. I, I'm too upset. They basically ruined the plot within the first 20 Se- seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they kind of give away the entire point of... The, the, the kind of cliffhanger of the short story. Yeah, whilst also crowbarring an extra totally unnecessary bit of plot into it. It, it just it seemed... 
it was nonsense, really. Well, the, the main character that they crowbar into it, you, you, you don't even really see him or understand him or know mm. anything about him anyway. And there's nothing, he's so not it's, in the book in any sense. No. So it's totally pointless. It was, yeah. yeah, quite a flawed attempt to represent the story and on screen. they made it seem a hell of a lot slower. Despite, like, putting more in it, mm. the plot just seemed to... Drag for a very Definitely. small. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so this more action-based story dragged more than a story about people chasing down photocopied yeah. checks. Amazingly, yeah, because I can definitely vouch for the fact that the original story is is punchy. I, mean, I this is one that I'd not read before we did this podcast, oh, and I read it for the first time uh, in a fairly sleep-deprived state in various slightly dodgy accommodation in German squats. Um, and um, still held my attention really well, so it must be good. Yeah, so if it can distract <laughs> you from the... Uh, I'm not going to say horrors, I don't know what squats you're well, in. To be fair, they were quite good squats. I'm sure they were nigh on palatial. Absolutely, but still. <laughs> yeah, the adaptation, I think, sums up the problems with the TV series, mm. which is that they try and tell the story from the perpetrator and victim's point of view. Or not, mm. not even victim quite, that's not quite mm. the right term. That means that they sideline the cops and the actual procedure. Mm. Yeah. It, so it takes away any of the tension or the excitement from the, the actual process of trying to find out what's happened because you already know what's happened. And they've also, I think, lessened the crime. They've mm. made it so that it's more, you're going to be more sympathetic to what's happened to one of the characters, one of the main characters, which may be a decision by TV executives to say, you know, we can't have anyone being that morally dubious. Because mm. the heart of this actual story, the, the moral core of it is really weird. Mm. It is just a bizarre identity theft story. Someone just goes like, opportunity here to change my life at the cost of mm. a, a family re- relative's death. Yeah. And it's not the sort of person you would expect necessarily. And that makes it seem quite creepy because it is all about just opportunities, just yeah. it's just about, oh, it came along. It's not premeditated, whereas in the TV series, everything's premeditated to the point of stupidity. Mm. And they have to get some extra villains in to make it, make it work. Yeah, it was wholly unsatisfying. Although there were a couple of good, mo- a couple of like fun moments where they yeah, used little bits the from, from, from the book. Uh, not all of whom were portrayed that well, but one or one or two of whom kind of seemed a bit like they were in in the story. They did have an amusing uh, sequence with the guy who drove the character back from the lake, yes. and his his wife who kept popping out of a window and shouting at him. Yeah, that that was a bit a bit of contrived bit in the book, I thought as well. The the bit with the taxi driver where the the rumble the fact that uh, she doesn't have a driving licence. Mm. The tax driver says something about her, um, him asking her to start the car or something. And she couldn't even do that. Yeah, well, you, and you think that would just never happen. Like, a taxi driver would never... Like, somebody you'd be employing would... You'd never say, can you... I don't know. It, 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 I, I found that a bit daft. Unless that happened all the time in 1962. Well, how no complicated idea. was it to start a car in 1962? Is it any more complicated than it is now? Well, no, but I don't even mean the complexity of no, it. I mean the fact that he would even ask, ask the question yeah, exactly, in the first yeah, place. Quite. Now that does seem odd. Yeah, it's just a way of trying to get across a piece of information, so maybe that is a bit clunky. Yeah. Well, so, not to get across the entire 
that the, the, hin- the, the entire thing hinges on that. Well, I it? mean, it, he had already kind of said that she couldn't drive, but I suppose it's just they, they were. It, I guess I they was looking for some concrete way yeah, of yeah, demonstration. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that you know, in retrospect, there might have been a better way of doing that. Ultimately, it's one of the clues that is, that goes alongside the piecing together of the the paper trail of the checks. Absolutely. Teddy Carella makes an appearance in this story, literally for. Two pages as she sits quietly in a car while Steve Carella takes her on a drive up to the lake where he promptly just leaves her and does all this police work and then goes <laughs> home again. <laughs> However, in the story, unlike in the TV series, he doesn't return with a canoe strapped to the top of his That's car. That's very true. But you think they sort of put in the TV series to be a bit of a slightly comic moment, but they just, they just sort of forget about it. Mm. Can you really do forensics? On a hole in a canoe. That's been repaired. Can, yeah. you, can you? I just, yeah. No. Maybe these days, but not in 1962. They said they came up with some preposterous... It's a high-powered rifle, yeah. probably with a silencer. The hole was like as big as your arm. <laughs> anyway, we're not spoiling anything by saying that there's, the canoe gets shot, because in the book it doesn't. It yeah. most certainly does not. You can't spoil by omission, can you? Oh, I don't know. Anyway, my favourite sequence in this is another one that's one of the main clues, which is when they go to talk to the hairdressers. Mm-hmm. Hairdressers? Talk to the hairdressers. So I don't know why I threw an extra <laughs> syllable in there then. Because that's another slightly comedy scene. Mm. Cotton Hawes gets asked about three times in this where he gets his streak oh, yeah. in his hair. And that the hairdressers really feels nervous because he's a big man and it's, it's all that sort of stuff's going on. And they meet the main hairdresser is a man called Mr. Sam. Yes. Who, for some reason, is called Mr. Paul in the TV episode. Which, you know, Paul's a good name. I'm pretty you know, <laughs> fond of it. But he's called Mr. Sam. And it does let uh, Cotton and Steve have a slightly comical moment of saying, <laughs> yes, Mr. Cotton, yes, Mr. Steve, type thing. <laughs> which was quite nice, anyway. The story in the book hinges on a coincidence from Lineup. I think Lineup is one of the things that should be on the McBain bingo card. Mm-hmm. But I don't know when that stops. Line up being the thing where they parade yeah, all the criminals. It probably doesn't happen as often as you think. It crops up quite often in the early ones. I'm, yeah. I'm guessing because uh, the, the, I, I know in some of the later ones they have uh, characters remembering when they used to have to do line up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing that there's actually a procedural change in terms of like what New York cops did, and he's realised that and stopped writing about it. You'd have yeah. thought that at a certain point that the crime rate got so that you couldn't actually have mm. all the detectives or a representative of all the precincts dragged into a room and all the criminals paraded yeah, up. Yeah, it'd be a massive waste of time. So, um, <laughs> Especially when information sharing got better. Definitely, yeah. So I'm not sure quite where that phases out. We'll have to keep an eye on it. Yeah, important we'll feature in these earlier works, definitely. And, well, I've got one more thing that I really want to mention about this story. Is This is the level of research detail that I will find for you, dear listeners. Is that there's a mention Shut of... <laughs> a mention of... In the forensics team uh, examining the flat of the, the corpse of the first victim, they're using a Soderman Heuberger filter to vacuum the room. Mm. And they actually, he, the fact that he mentions it by name made me intrigued because it's not something that you know about and a cursory search suggests it's not something that is widely known necessarily but ultimately what the Soderman Heuberger filter of which I have a page of stuff about I am not going to read out I will boil it down to this 
it's basically something you stick on the end of an Electrolux vacuum and hoover the room with it, and it just collects forensically detailed particles of dust. Mm. Fair enough. Good stuff. So apparently that's what they used. Clean me out, you want. Yeah, who knows what you'll find. (laughs) Basically, it's a piece of filter paper and a sort of cartridge cassette thing that you stick on the end of the the hoover and then hoover up. So I'll I'll share a diagram illustrating that. I'll I'll share it with you guys because it it looks very simple. What's going on there? They're, they're, they're checking that suit for crime. Looks like he's been killed. <laughs> His insides have been sucked out. A man being stabbed by a Soderman Hoigberger filter. <laughs> well, yeah. What device do you need to filter the uh, crime scene if the, the weapon of crime is a Soderman Hoigberger filter? Let's hope we never have to find that out. Yeah, that would. That, the criminals will have won that day. <laughs> yeah. I'm sort of Steve-O's entranced now with the forensic no, 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 no. to this Hoover. That's okay. There's stuff on here about tuning forks and Petri dishes and all sorts. Oh, gosh. So that's that's Sam Grossman's territory, really, isn't it? Yeah, I yeah. suppose it is. There's no particular massive, what would I call it, social issue at play here. This is just a straight, weird crime. And I think we've remained fairly vague about what it is because it is if you haven't read it because this this is a book that's worth having to hand for that sort of real punch of stuff and that's what i'm i'm stepping back from the empty hours now because we need to move on to the other two stories and we're going to move straight on to j the letter j now put your hand up if you've done your research about j i I did some research yeah i I did more than none okay well would you want to outline it to start with anyway more yeah, I mean it's it's a uh, it's a pretty cool story actually. It basically, uh, I guess details the investigation following the murder of a rabbi who was found in an alleyway surrounded by paint and things. And the only clue really that's sort of in the vicinity is uh, the, the the letter J painted on a wall nearby. And I think it covers a theme that that McBain and Evan Hunter come back to, which is sort of like kind of the experience of people of different cultures as kind of Americans, really. Yeah, this is, um, the, this is the, the, one in, the only one in this book of the three stories that's got this sort of social aspect to it, the social yeah. aspect, the religious aspect, anything more weighty than day-to-day policing or a peculiarity on, yeah. you know, as the, in the last story. So I think as an Italian-American himself, he certainly touches on that and then he'll look at Jewish-Americans and... Uh, Afro-Americans experience and it's something that will it'll come back to over and over again this one particularly obviously is looking at the Jewish community and there's, there's quite a sort of hardly hitting image early on with the corpse of this poor rabbi in this this uh, sea of red white and blue but the red is blood and it's like oh right okay that's where we're going it's a very powerful sort of image of the crime scene mm, isn't it absolutely but it's also a bit of a classic sort of Almost like a TV crime scene. Yeah, episode, absolutely. The corpse is found uh, scrawling, attempting to put a last message out there. That's quite Agatha Christie out, as well. Yeah, sort of it's a bit like yeah. uh, um, studying Scarlet with the R. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely, yeah. It's in, it's in, in blood. 
So, uh, probably, you know, that's definitely got to be an influence on it, if not directly, but at least in the terms of that trope existing. And, and I suppose at, at the early stage, the investigating officers aren't sure whether this Jay has been uh, left there by the the criminal or the victim. Yeah. Which is an important thing. So, yeah. And they haul some local... Anti-Semite uh, nut yeah. job. Uh, early interviews with the, uh, the, the local sort of Jewish community do reveal that there has been a, a local anti-Semite who's been causing some bother around chapter 4 isn't he I think yeah and then he gets given a bum alibi by his girlfriend absolutely but yeah he's a nasty piece of work he's got a all manner of inflammatory pamphlets and I did look into this a bit uh, because I I wasn't sure what was going on sort of in terms of just anti-Semitic groups in, in the States at this time You'd have hoped that after sort of World War Two that maybe anti-Semitism would have been at an all-time low, but apparently not. No. Main perpetrators of this around the time, a group called the Liberty Lobby. Don't know. Active until really recently, actually, um, run by a guy called Willis Carto, who died just a few years ago, and I can't say I'm that sorry to hear that he did. No. Um, but uh, Sounds, yeah. Yeah. Very much in the manner of a lot of like equally nefarious groups that have sprung up in recent years, a kind of a group of respectable-looking people who put on a kind of very clean-cut front and present themselves as like political populists, but are actually, if you scratch the surface, just really horrible, just devoted to. Well, let's be glad there's none of them around anymore. Well, exactly. Uh... Yeah, um, among the people who. who continued promoting Charles Lindbergh's America First slogan as revived by Donald Trump uh, mm. more recently. And, yeah, just... So they were, would be probably the main group in the States at the time churning out these anti-Semitic pamphlets, also had a separate wing devoted to trying to prove the Holocaust didn't happen. and Nasty, nasty pieces of work. Oh, how is this stuff around. still going on? It just it, it baffles me. So yeah, the, 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 this story again kind of it, it strikes a few chords because it's it, some of the things that that crop up in it seem alarmingly relevant many many years later. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, that's the Finch, very much kind of the embodiment of this kind of nasty strain of anti-Semitism that's still going on in the states at that point. But uh, alarmingly, although he seems like such a perfect fit. He's quite well hollowed, isn't he? He escapes from justice, as it were, once he's hauled in. And actually, that's more or less the last we see of him. Yeah. And that's not because they don't get their man. They do get their man. Yeah. And it's, but it's not Artie Finch, the obvious candidate. Absolutely, because it turns out there are other things, other issues affecting Jewish communities in the States at this time. Um, Such as the... Progress of the church, the synagogue, yeah, yeah, well, the just the way in which like the faith is developing in the states at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, we get a little bit of explanation about this. Um, I think the rabbi in question is a conservative, um, he's considered to be so. I guess at this point, you have Orthodox Judaism, and then I think Reform Judaism has happened, which is trying to make a fairly radical move away from Orthodoxy, and then the conservative stranded form to try and bridge a gap there but it's still considered to be heretics by many sort of more orthodox followers of, of, of the faith mm. uh, I, th- I guess this must have been in the news around the time because um, I think tensions between different strands of Judaism and the states have been coming to a head apparently eventually solved or at least solved temporarily in 1964 
by the uh, Responsum on Relations with Non-Orthodox Judaism by Joseph B. Uh, Soloveitchik, who basically wrote an academic treatise to explain that although not all strands of Judaism followed the first covenant of Judaism, which was uh, adherence to the... Um, the halakha, the, the the laws of of the Jewish faith, they were all bound together by a second covenant, so that allowed the different strands to work mm. together. I think before that, tensions between these different strands of Judaism were definitely running high. Maybe not quite high enough for anyone to commit a serious crime. I don't know. I, do, I couldn't yeah, find yeah. any immediate evidence of such a, a thing happening. This is where he's put all the weight of his social stuff in this book. Absolutely, into yeah. this one story. That was definitely something that would have been happening in communities at that time. A lot of people with very strong feelings that their particular strand of the religion was the right one to follow. And there would have been a lot of, a lot of tension so he obviously had his ear to the ground, knew what was happening. Yeah. And it's interesting to see uh, uh, Maya Maya just dealing with this as a not, he's not really particularly a practicing Jew. He'll, he'll go through sort of yeah, bits of it. Yeah, he's, he's Passover's not, happening, and so they're, they're yeah. obeying that, aren't they, in he's, his household? He's not massively observant, we get the impression, but it does make well, him Well, he really, goes into work, doesn't he, to, yeah. to, to do this case because it's, it's to do with you know, the rabbi. So it's interesting to see what what the, the case does to him, him actually thinking about his identity as as a Jewish man in, in the States and, and what that means to him. It's the most hard-hitting of the three, it isn't is. it? Definitely, yeah, it definitely yeah. is. And in a way, that makes it an interesting positioning in the middle of the book. Mm. After a very standard sort of investigation story at one end, a more, I don't want to say a light-hearted murder at the other, but it's the real sort of, it's, it's the meat of the three stories. Mm. And it's also the only one that you can sort of place into timeline mm. because it's got a it's got like a very brief reference to uh, the candy store over which the man named Finch lived was owned by a Puerto Rican whose son had been a cop, a man named Hernandez. Ah, yeah. yes, of course. So you can that's after the death of Frankie Hernandez two mm. books ago or whatever it was. Okay. So should we jump straight ahead to the third book in this called Storm? And Steve, mm-hmm. do you want to outline the it, it, nature it, of this thingy? Indeed, yes. Well, this this is um, set out of town in uh, a skiing resort where uh, Cotton Horse has uh, popped off for the weekend on the uh, recommendation of Hal Willis, no less, with his new lady friend. Who I'm not sure crops up in any of the other. Well, that's one of the dating problems in terms of the timeline. I don't remember her name anyway. No, because at this point, he's been seeing Christine Maxwell, Mm. and they seem to have gone from you know because he was a he was a bit of a lover man. Well, and then he he meets Christine Maxwell, and the few times she's cropped up, it's it's like they are a proper Mm. couple, aren't they? And in this one, he's taking some girl he's met very briefly a couple of times in town on this skiing holiday. Perhaps he's been a naughty weekend. Perhaps he's been a naughty boy. It's quite possible. Who knows? But then he, uh, yeah, he goes to this resort and gets checked in with a guy who's hobbling around on crutches, and he's in some annex. Meets some Austrian. A man called Helmut Kurtz. Uh, yeah, it reminded me a bit uh, of um, oh god, which one? Um, which one? What? Uh, for <laughs> your eyes only, with Roger Moore up and down the ski lift and. <laughs> Lots of East Eastern Europeans wandering around looking surly in ski jackets. Reminded me a bit of that. But anyhow, yeah, yeah. they go out skiing and then Cotton Horse gets on the uh, ski lift and then um, a body drops off and then a storm arrives and some 
bumpkin, or are they? Uh, local cops are there, balls and everything up, so cotton all <laughs> stinks. Yes. And then uh, he does uh, a little bit of private detective work and yeah, kind of. Uh, well, this, this is like a this is like Columbo or yeah. or um, any of those other detective stories where no matter where your detective goes, something happens. Yeah. So Columbo can't go on holiday. Poirot can't go on holiday because someone's going to die. Yeah. And it's happening here to Cotton Hawes. Yeah. Uh, and so it kind of rattles. I think it must possibly be the shortest of the three uh, because it seemed to rattle on at a, a breakneck speed and you've not really any much time to even start thinking about who it is and then it all kind yeah. of wraps up at the end. And Yeah. It, the it job's is, a good one, really. It is snappy, isn't it? It's funny, actually, there's two of these stories have got sort of bumpkin cops. Um, <laughs> and that basically means non-city cops, doesn't it? The first story has got the people up by Lake Triangle mm. who are a bit like, well, we, we did the investigation, here's the information, whatever. Mm. You know, they're all right. And in this one, Cotton Hawes is absolutely horrified by the fact that they're handling evidence. They seem to have no idea about how to treat a crime scene. Mm. Whereas they're actually more concerned about the fact that there's been blowing a, a complete storm. How could you actually see what you thought you saw? And and, and, and yet the rea- reality of the matter is they're on it, aren't they? And it's uh, and he's quite arrogant, and he's the one that actually messes things up at a critical point in the investigation when they've they've laid a trap, haven't they? Because they know there's uh, <laughs> the critical piece of evidence still out there, and they're all waiting. And there goes Cotton Hall's uh, trap by the hero. Yeah, we'll bring on in the yeah. death get. Uh, so you, you can't really say too much more about the plot without giving it away. Really. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. It's got um, the shortest character list of the three stories by, yeah. by a long chalk, particularly on the side of, of uh, law and investigation. It is basically Cotton Hawes as a mention of Willis as, as the guy who's... And then it's just the yeah, local yeah. Compared to the other two, a bit whimsical. The whimsicalness whimsical, to, I think, yeah. to it. I don't it's, know. it's definitely sort of an excuse to step outside the sort of standard procedure for, for an 87 precinct thing, really, yeah. isn't it? But it does contain one of my favourite things, which is that extra bit of information about the cop's backstory. Hmm. It talks about the first time Cotton Hawes saw a corpse, oh, right, which okay. is quite nice, hmm. for his cosy career in the 30th precinct before he was transferred and about how he vomited after seeing his first course. Yeah. And it also talks about the time when he was on a stakeout, and, and I think he's on a stakeout, he thought he heard midgets marching around the room, <laughs> and it turns out to be rats. <laughs> so he's super sensitive to uh, sleeping in strange places. It is cool how um, Bane will drop these extra bits into as a kind of reward for reading the, the sort of bits about the character again. Yeah, and actually Maya gets a little bit more as, as well, mm. I think, in the... In the second story, there's not masses of development in the first story, but yeah, Maya, Maya. You definitely you learn quite a bit more about Maya actually in that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because yeah, he, he, he just repeating the same stuff. Whilst he appears in a hell of a lot of uh, the books until now, he doesn't really have a. You think he's a got big a investigative big, role. Yeah, yeah, you think he's got a bigger role. Because he's always there, yeah. then he actually has. He just kind of crops up and wisecracks a bit. Yeah, and... so he, he never, off his own bat, as it were, does a great deal, really. Yeah, he's there as one's... a bit of a commentator. Yeah, it? and always always second fiddle to somebody else. Yeah, really. whereas he's, he's fairly pivotal in, in this, and uh, it, it's certainly in, in Jay and his 
his knowledge of Jewish names, Hebrew names, is is quite pivotal. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is. Although I quite like in in Jay when he's every time the the, the sexton who's talking about trappings of Judaism and the stuff like that. Maya keeps telling Steve <laughs> the, the anglicised version of yeah. it to the point where Steve's sort of like, okay, yeah, I understand. I know what the skull cap is. I know what this is. It's like Maya's sort of like, he's really feeling the role as mm. I am the token Jew here. Yeah. I have, so therefore I have to, I have to super explain everything to the point where he, you know, it's just, I quite like that little bit of like, yeah, okay, just, just get on with the thing. So, that's three stories. I did a Twitter poll uh, a few days ago, only a quick one, and it had a, a couple of respondents about which one of these three stories people found the best. And by a long chalk, The Empty Hours itself mm. won by 63% of the votes. Storm came second with 24%, yeah. and well, Jay with only 13%. Shocking. But then it was only a very small number of respondents. <laughs> but... Uh, I think because The Empty Hours is the first one in the book and it's more like the traditional Well, we should story. have our own little votes here. Which was your favourite of the three? I like The Empty Hours best. You see, I would say so as well. What about you, Morgan? It's Especially honest, as a new reader to these stories. To be honest, I, I really like The Empty Hours best, but I did vote for Jay because I, I was like, I'm looking at that one and also it's got less votes than everything else. But yeah. I like Jay as well. Um, I, I think th- what lets it down is that the motive for the murder doesn't seem all that plausible. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a stretch, I think. But I like a lot of the actual sort of content of the story. I think yeah. it's it's you know very readable and very well worth a read. Yeah, and as I, we say, it's got the it's got the political and social heart to it that would feel really missing if it wasn't somewhere within the you know yeah, the front definitely. and back cover of this book. Absolutely. How are we going to get Kenneth to calculate scores for this? Are we, we're going to have to do this as a book as a whole. Otherwise. We need to have our summing up, don't we? Well, we're not summed up, well, have we? Well, I don't know. Sum- I had a further we... summing up observation anyway. Well, please, I've, I've sum been, away. Having reread it, though, um, quite often I can never remember what on earth happens and hmm. who did it, and yet, strangely enough, I don't know whether it's because they're all small, reading it as soon as I started, I, I could remember what happened. Hmm. So that was a strange thing, because it doesn't normally happen that. Yeah, I wonder if... I can remember, oh, this one is a case of blah de blah in Empty Hours, and then in Jay, I instantly remembered who'd done it. <laughs> yeah. And then in Storm, I could, yeah... Uh, yeah, perhaps because of the format... Face cropped up, I was like, oh, right, yeah. The format of the show. Because you don't have story. so many red herrings, and exactly. maybe, That's so... True. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 they you don't get quite have, the same... Definitely doesn't have time to lead you down that many blind alleys. time, do you? Yeah. But, uh, because if you didn't... If you did something that was a massive twist at the end of a short story, you'd probably feel more cheated, wouldn't mm. you? Because if it... Yeah, you know, At yeah, the end yeah, of yeah. a long investigation, you can have a sort of... A quick-ish twist at the end, yeah. yeah, yeah, where things pivot, as we've seen on a couple of, hmm. of the novels. But if you do that in a short story, it really does feel like. We well, just feel like. And then they woke up. Yeah. They, yeah. What's the point of all those chapters of just Absolutely. read if you're just going to throw all really that out? Yeah. yeah. It was someone else, and they caught him by chance. The end. That would have been. So anyway, that was, that was my general observation. But it's interesting to read the short stories. It's the. It's the first time we've we've come across short stories in the main range, but obviously they do exist, and there are some other ones out there from the later years as well, which I've listed on the website and mentioned, like the ones for the BBC that he did in two thousand and whatever it was. But how are we going to calculate our scores? Are we going to do? We're going to have to do it as a book as a whole because I think so. we are, they made yeah. that decision to put them all together into yep. one volume. 
what were we at last time? I can't remember. We've got that information to hand. Would you like me to uh, outline? <laughs> that? I'd just like to know. I could never know. Never know where we stand, really. What did we do last time? The scores. The previous instalment. I'm just um, cranking up Kenneth's score screen. <laughs> to uh, not turned on the gas. No, I know it's, it the, takes the, a long those... time. The tubes take a while to warm that, up. That's it. Yeah, you have to wait until they're glowing red, and then. Uh... So, lady, lady, I did it. Got seventy-five police shields. And See Them Die got 83. And before that, it was low battery 20%. Oh, no, that's my phone. <laughs> I mean, that was Kenneth Schuss, what? The Heckler, which was 85. My phone. <laughs> lady, Lady, I Did It was one of the lower scoring ones that we've had, basically, recently. So, oh, this, is, oh, this is really tricky to score now I'm thinking about it. It, it feels like you might do... No, let's just go for it, okay? I am going to nail my colours to the mast and I am going to award police shields to the quantity of 72 to this volume. Oh, my voice cracked then. I was clearly... I wasn't lying. I was just getting emotional. 72 police shields from me. Much as it's nice to read these short, snappy stories, which really do rattle along, and that's that's a sort of nice, heart-pounding experience, I do like my longer stories. And that's all I've got to say on the matter, and I'm going over to Morgan. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. The, the short, snappy stories are good. I think there's there's a lot to enjoy here. But, yeah, you, you do miss being, like, properly immersed in the kind of... the sort of greater sort of depth of the 87th precincts that you get from, from, from the novels. I'm nodding. Um, so, uh, yeah, I... I mean no disrespect to the book whatsoever by awarding it 70 police shields. 70... And Steve-O. Yeah, well, I've been doing a lot of nodding as well, yeah. So somehow it just doesn't pull you in in the same way. And they're all a bit disjointed and Storm is flipping stupid. <laughs> uh, more to the point. Um, oh, it's enjoyably daft. Yeah, right? so I, I did like Empty Hours and then I just think they get progressively not as good reading through myself. And so, I, yeah, I'm going to be somewhat lower, I think, because... I think I would be, I think, marginally under, maybe six, uh, <laughs> 59, I think. Whoa! I, I think it's just there we go. shy of a 6 out of 10 myself. There we go. Um, well, but bold scoring. And the score then is 67 police shields, Kenneth tells us, on his punched card, ticker tape, whatever it is, output. Gosh. Okay, well... It's an interesting thing. Uh, one thing I will say is, obviously, if you're an 87th Precinct fan in 1962 mm. and you want a new book, it's better to have this than not oh, have it yeah. at all, especially if you've not seen these stories in the magazines, Quite. which many people wouldn't have done. No. Oh, no, it's, it, it is enjoyable. I'm just trying to score it uh, fairly compared to the others pre- in, pre- in, in my, yeah, in no, my that, view. That, that, I think that's fine. Um, OK, well, we've been rambling on for what seems like forever now. Uh, so we will end there and we will return with an actual novel rather than a collection of novellas next time what's, when we look, ne- what's up next it's the second half of 1962 and the story is Like Love tremendous so until that time I will say goodbye like this goodbye fairly well goodbye goodbye <laughs>